Hey, Redemption Church, this is Pastor Anthony here. I just want to give you a little heads up. Uh, the first three minutes of this sermon recording is a, a little bit echoey and tinny sounding. Uh, we were doing some things with the live stream, trying to figure out the best way to, to record and get the audio to the live stream. And so there were some technical difficulties at the beginning of this recording. So just want to give you a heads up. It only lasts about three or so minutes, and then it kind of goes back to the, the normal quality that our sermon recordings have. But so... Just a heads up there, and without further ado, here's uh, that sermon. All right, so a few years ago, I spent a night at my parents' house. They lived down in Phoenix. I spent a night at my parents' house, and on the nightstand next to the bed that I was staying in was a journal, okay? And so, of course, I'm going to open it and snoop through it, all right? Like, I'm at my parents' house, and I found a journal. This could be one of my siblings. Like, there's so much ammo I could find in this thing, potentially. So I open this journal up. I start reading it, and what, what is weird is... The journal entries are written to me. They're written to Anthony, and they're actually written to my siblings as well. So it'll be like Anthony and Bridget, Anthony and Bridget and Rosemary. And, and what I begin to find out as I start reading this, this journal is it was actually written by my mom. And my mom wrote this journal, and she wrote this journal like throughout my childhood. Like she would just take a moment, like when I was one or two or three, and just kind of write an entry. And in this, in this journal, these entries would have, like, it would kind of describe our life. It would kind of describe us as kids. And it's a little bit scary and weird how similar toddler Anthony is to 35-year-old Anthony. Like, it's a little bit, I don't know if, I think that means I need some maturing. And so, but, so you would just see these descriptions of us as kids, and we'd see how similar they are to us now, even as adults. And, and, and then some other kind of interesting things in the journal, my mom uh, she really struggled with depression all throughout my childhood. And so even in these journal entries, she's, she's kind of like chronologuing what that was like for her, how her struggle uh, with depression is. And then another really interesting thing about this is my mom became a Christian at some point in my childhood. I don't remember exactly when, but I definitely think I kind of have memories of her like not being a Christian when I was a kid. And then she became a Christian when I was a kid. And what's amazing about this journal is like the first number of entries are like her as an atheist. And then kind of the middle amount of entries are kind of like her thinking about becoming a Christian. And then the last number of entries, like she is a Christian. And it's just kind of fascinating to see her perspectives and views and how the Lord was like working in her life and wooing her and drawing her to, to himself. And interesting even seeing like my dad's witness to her as my dad became a Christian before she did and her just seeing what faith did to him and how he kind of really just became more like Jesus in a number of ways. And you kind of just see all this stuff in this journal. And so I just went originally snooping into a journal thinking like I was going to get some ammo on my siblings. It became like this like really powerful moment in my life where there's this journal that exists that was written to me that I had no idea existed. And I saw all of these things about my mom that I had no idea about. All of these things about my childhood that I didn't know about. And, and really this journal to me, it's just, it's, it's, it's like a treasure to me. There's just like things that I could not hold as a child that were going on in my life that this journal holds and, and, and communicates to me and tells me about. And, and so this journal, like in a time where maybe I didn't know what was going on in my mom's brain or didn't understand those things or didn't know her in the same way that I know her now, this journal kind of, it, it's like this faithful witness to her. 
It's like this witness to who she is, but it's not just a witness to her. It's a witness to who we were as kids and what life was like for us, for us as kids. And so it's just, this journal is just like a treasure to me. It's like one of the things I just really treasure of like tr- things I have that are sentimental to me. So hold that thought about that journal. And then let's look at Isaiah 43, 10 through 12 really quick. This is God speaking to the people of Israel, and he's saying things to them. So we'll see what he says in verse 10 of Isaiah 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me, I Even I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Here's what, let's stop there, but here's what's amazing about Scripture. One of the ways Scripture works is Scripture is a faithful an accurate witness to who God is. And it's not just an accurate witness to who he is, it's an accurate witness to what he has done in history. And so when we're reading the Old Testament, which is the section of the Bible that Isaiah is in, what we have to realize is God took the Israelites and he said, you guys are going to be my witnesses. And that word witness there, it has those kind of like court case uh, connotations, like someone in a court trial comes to the witness stand and is a witness. God picked Israel to be his witnesses, to be able to see God and say, this is what he did. This is who he is. And the words that they wrote down in books like Isaiah and the whole Old Testament, the words that they wrote, wrote down, they tell us so much about who God is and often who we are. And so just like that journal from my childhood is like a faithful witness to my mom and her character and who she is and even us as kids and what our childhood was like, the Bible acts like that journal does. The Bible acts like that journal does. When we are in Old Testament books, we're getting this picture of God from a time past and not that God has changed, but we get these things and we see who his character has been through all eternity. We get to see his works that he's done a long time ago. And so God took the people of Israel and he said, you guys, you're going to be my journal writers. You are going to be the witnesses to who I am to this world. And today, in the Servant King series that we're in, and the chapters that we're in today, which are chapters 43 and 44, we're in particular going to see God, a witness to God. Like, we're going to see how chapters 43 and 44 witness to who God is and the works that he's done in history. These chapters are really going to work as like a divine journal entry for us as we get to see who God is and the work he's done. If you don't know right now, we're in this series called Servant King, where we're going through chapters 40 through 55 of Isaiah. And we're going through that section because that section kind of all goes together in the, in the larger book of Isaiah. And 40 through 55 is one long, beautiful poem. And, it's a po- and there's poems within poems. And it's just this long, beautiful poem. And it's this word that God is giving to a beat down, depressed, 
hopeless people who live in exile, which means they live under foreign rule, and they're just discouraged by that at that moment. And so today, we're going to be in chapters 43 and 44, hitting some of those verses, drawing some of those verses out, and all of the verses that we're going to look at today are a witness to God, just like that journal is a witness to who my mom is. And so there's three ways that today's verses and passages that we're in are going to act as a witness to God. The first way is, it's going, the, chapter 43 is going to act as a witness to God's love. The second way these chapters are going to act as a witness is chapter 43 and 44 a bit will act as a witness to God's work of a new exodus. And then the third way that this, these passages are going to act as a witness is it's going to act as a witness to God's work of pouring out the Spirit. And so we're going to look at each one of those witnesses to God and see who God is and the sort of work he's done in history, okay? So let's start by starting at the beginning of Isaiah 43. I'm going to just read the first seven verses of Isaiah 43, and this is where we're going to see this first witness to who God is. This is what it says. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob. Just as a heads up, sometimes God calls his people Jacob, because Jacob was the father of all of the patriarchs of Israel, okay? He who created you, Jacob. He who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Instead, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I'm with you. I will bring your children from the east. I will gather them from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, don't hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the first witness that we're looking at this morning. These verses, these first seven verses, act as a witness to God's love. A fundamental part of God's character is his love. And these verses, from over 2,000 almost 2,500, maybe more years ago, act as a witness of God's love. Look, look at all the ways that his love is described. He, he talks to Israel like they're his children. In fact, he's saying, like, look, I see you like my kids. He describes Israel as his kids. So his love is this parental, fatherly love. And he is the sort of father that wants his kids with him, even his kids from the ends of the earth. And because they are in exile, right? So foreign rulers have come in, oppressed them, and scattered them all over the place. He's saying, I'm going to gather my kids from everywhere. I'm going to find them, right? If you've seen Taken, this is God. He's like going to find his kids. He, he loves his kids so much that he says, hey, when you're through the waters and fires 
of life. I'll be there with you. He's using this imagery from Israel's history, this imagery that almost always represented some sort of danger that they were in. And God is saying, when you're in danger, I will be there with you. His love is the sore love. It doesn't run away when things get scary. Verse 4, it's like one of my favorite verses in, the, in this whole series probably so far. He says, you guys are, you're precious to me. You're honored in my sight. You're precious to me. I want to honor you. Have you ever been like precious to someone? Has someone ever been precious to you? That's how God loves his people. They are precious to him. And then he just makes sure they know. He says, and I love you. I love that. This is what God wanted to tell his people who were in the midst of oppression and hopelessness and punishment. And what we know from the story of the Bible is that even though God is saying this to his people in that time or in place, is this is the sort of love God has not just for Israel, but for all of humanity. And so it could be a really easy out right now to go, well, this is what he was saying through Isaiah to that people in exile. But we forget that Israel has always been who God wanted to use to show how he loves the whole world. And so I want, I, I, I want to reread the first half of verse 4 again, but this time I want you to hear it like it's a journal you found that was written to you. You are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you. You are precious to God. God wants to honor you. God loves you. Here's what's really interesting. The passage right before this, at the end of Isaiah 42, it sounds really contradictory, okay? And and I want to read a few verses to show you the contradictory sounding nature of of the end of 42. I'm going to read verses 18 through 20, and then I'll hop down to verse 24 and 25. This is God, again, talking to Israel. Here's what he says in verse 18. Hear, you deaf. Look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant? And deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. So in those first handful of verses that I just read... He's, he's saying, Israel, I'm right here in front of you, and you are blind to me. Israel, I am speaking to you, and you're deaf. You're, li- you're refusing to hear me. Look at 24 and 25. Who handed Jacob over to become loot, and Israel to, be, to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord, against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways, and they did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. 
So these, <laughs> these contradictory verses are like, Anthony, you could have avoided this. You'd be a better preacher. But these contradictory verses come right before God says all of this stuff about love. And this is really fascinating to me, right? Because it, it's almost like in, the, in verse 25, he says, you are in the fire because I put you there because of your sin. And then in the opening verses of 43, he goes, actually, I'm going to stay with you in the fire. One theologian I was reading, one scholar I was reading on the book of Isaiah, he was talking about how this is a device that I think happens a couple different times. Like it's perhaps a poetic device in this section of Isaiah, almost like uh, the readers would read it and the readers would go, man, I am in trouble. I have willingly been blind. I've willingly been deaf to the Lord. And that is not good. And I'm in all sorts of trouble because of that. But then the poem takes a sharp turn. And it says, but actually, I love you. Actually, I'm going to walk through this with you. Actually, I'm going to save you from all of this. This is what God's love is like. This is what the poem is trying to do. It's trying to see you how powerful and majestic God's love is in, in spite of ourselves. God says to the people of Israel, you're in the fires right now because I put you there and you put yourselves there, but I can't let the fires consume you. That's what God's love is like. Yes, you're in the fires. You, you, may, you maybe even deserve the fires, but I can't let the fires consume you. That's how much I love you. In spite of our anger and sin and selfishness and stopping ourselves from seeing the trueness of God, he loves us and stays with us. That's what God's love is like. That's how it's being described in Isaiah 43. That's what this is a witness to, this huge, beautiful, startling love of God. Let me, let me describe... Let me describe God's love another way, in the same way, and how this passage describes it, but I want to use a, an example from my life to show you guys how I think God's love is being described here. I think God's love is like a mother's love. Uh, I'm going to try to use genderless pronouns here when I'm describing my kids, so you can't figure out which kid it is, okay? I don't like using my kids' examples, and I, uh, but I asked this kid if I could. Uh, <laughs> But uh, two of our kids, two of our kids in the mornings, horrible at getting ready, okay? Me and Jess have to get to work, and our kids don't want that happening at all costs, right? Like, this is like their, like, mission in life to stop us from getting to work. And so two of our kids, they are just horrible tyrants to us in the morning. We are lucky when they are not. Like, we're like, yes, we love you, thank you, like... And two of them are horrible tyrants. And one of the kids is particularly horrible to my wife, Jess. Just really mean. My, Jess would be like, oh, here are your shoes. I know! Like, just like, okay, what? <laughs> just like everything my wife says to this kid, this kid screams back at her. All, like, not every morning, but a lot of, a, a lot 
of mornings. It's just bad. And, and mind you, my wife is really patient with the kids and very kind and very loving. And, and often she's not even rushing the kids. Like, I feel like she's often trying to play this game like, hey, no rush, no big deal. I know, yeah, we got to get there. But like, hey, like she's like doing her best to not stress our kids out in the morning when we're getting ready. And yet our kids are stressed out and taking it out on us, yelling at us. And so there was this one morning a couple weeks ago where I'm in my room and I'm hearing this one kid and my wife, and this one kid is just losing it on my wife, just hardcore losing it. And it was bad. And then they leave and they go to their place. And Jess comes home from work, and I'm like, man, that was bad. What happened? And it was like, nothing, nothing happened. Like, that, that kid is just bullying me, like, and just being really mean to me for no reason. And, it, and, and I could tell, just like, this kind of hurts my feelings. Like, this kind of hurt me. I'm kind of sick of just being, like, screamed at and verbally abused every morning, just doing what we got to do as a family. Okay, so that, that was how that, we have dinner. And then after dinner, and this is where, I see God's love through my wife as she is a mother and how I see it similar to this passage. She says, hey, I'm going to go spend one-on-one time with that kid. So can you watch the other two, make sure they don't interrupt the one-on-one time I have with that kid. And they went in the room, and they went in the room not to be disciplined, not to be like, hey, you got to really stop that stuff. They went and they did something that they both like to do together. Just a fun activity together. My wife, when this kid screamed at her and bullied her, sinned against her, my wife said, instead of giving you more discipline, you need more love. That's what you need. You don't need more discipline right now. You need more love from your mom. And the kid, when they came out of the room after they were done hanging out and spending this quality time, the kid was just like edified. You could just tell that this kid was just happy and just more secure and, and all of this stuff. That's what God's love is like. That's what's being described in this passage. That's what Isaiah is being a witness to about. This is the sort of love that God has for all of us. He's the sort of God that, the, that even though our behavior and our actions put, get us in these fires and exile and whatever, God's love takes a sharp turn and says, but I can't let the fires consume you. And the real way out of this is by loving you, by giving you my love. Again, some curmudgeon Old theologians might tell you this was just a word for the people in exile, and that's it. But what those old curmudgeon theologians forget, I think one is that God loves them, but then two, that Israel has always been used as a cosmic example of what God feels cosmically for all of his creation, for all of humanity. And so if you're here, you're like, man, I don't know if this is just God's word to the people in exile or God's word to us. No, it's God's word to us too. God loves us. And that's how he loves us. He loves them like my wife loves our kids. God loves you. You're precious to him. And somehow, someway, his very love, it says, is going to protect you from the dangers and pains of this world even the ones you brought upon yourself. 
Which brings me to the second way that I think these chapters act as a witness. These chapters act as a witness to what God was going to do in history at that point, what he was going to do in history. And what he was going to do was this, this new exodus. This new exodus is what he wanted to do. Let me, let's look at Isaiah 43. We're going to be in verses 15 through 21. This is God continuing to speak to the people of God. And he says this, I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguish snuff out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Let's stop there. There's all this imagery in that passage that I just read. There's all this imagery from the Exodus story, okay? If you're not familiar with the Bible, one of the biggest moments in the Old Testament, in the first part of the Bible, is this Exodus story where God rescues the people of God, the Israelites, who, had, who have become enslaved under Pharaoh, under Egypt. He rescues them out of Egypt and forms them as, as a people. That's the Exodus story. If you don't know, if you're not familiar with it, Rent Prince of Egypt. It's a great uh, telling of that story, okay? If you're older in the room, the Ten Commandments, okay? With uh, Hes- Charleston, how do you say his name? Heston? Anyways, neither here nor there. There's a lot of ways to rent and watch the story. But this is the Exodus story. And these verses, the poet is referencing that imagery a lot. Look at some of the ways he references the imagery. He says, God is their redeemer. That was what God said to the people. He said, I will redeem you. I will rescue you at a cost to myself. Is kind of that picture of redemption there. Uh, he made a way through the sea and defeated the oppressors for Israel. That's in the Exodus story. He made a way in the wilderness, which is what God did for Israel after getting out of Egypt. It was like, well, well we're out here in the middle of the desert. I've got to make a way for you and help you survive since you don't have a city to live in right now. And, and the poet also notes how God... Yeah, provides for them water in the wilderness and provides for them in the wilderness. Now, so there's all this Exodus imagery, but what's interesting is if you saw verse 18, it says, uh, actually forget that stuff in verse 18, and then in verse 19 it says, see, I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing a new thing. But what the poem is doing here is it's linking that new thing to that old Exodus. So in other words, what God is communicating to the people of God here is he's saying, I am going to do a new exodus. I'm going to do a new exodus. And so far, this poem kind of builds on top of itself. And so as we read it, we have to remember some of the things God has been saying throughout the poem to understand what he's saying at later points in the poem. And so to understand this new exodus, what we know that this new exodus is going to have from the last few weeks we've been in this series is this new exodus is going to have... God himself arriving, God himself comforting his people, and people to the ends of the earth. It's going to have God bringing forgiveness. 
It's going to have God going and getting his people and bringing them in close to him. And now what we see in this poem is this new exodus is going to have this salvation from their enemies, their oppressors, and this provision of water in a wilderness. And what's cool is uh, these people in exile, some of them got to experience aspects of this new exodus because the story of for the people of god goes they were scattered in exile but eventually god allowed them and used even this king named cyrus to make laws so that the people of god the israelites could go back to israel and kind of rebuild their land a bit but even that it was never quite the new exodus like isaiah 40 through 55 describes and like what we just read And that's because Isaiah was talking about something else that would be this new exodus, that would have this amount of power. And and here's what we know, because we have the rest of the Bible, and we've been waiting around for 2,000 years. Jesus is the new exodus. The new exodus is Jesus. That's what Isaiah is talking about here, is this, God is going to arrive, it's Jesus. Jesus is the new exodus. Jesus is God himself arriving. Jesus is the one who wants to comfort his people but also make it so people to the ends of the earth are comforted by God himself. Jesus is the one getting people close to him, making a way for people to be close to God. And if you remember the, the Exodus story, the climatic moment in the Exodus story was this moment where the Israelites and really anyone that had faith in God would sacrifice this lamb in order to escape death that was coming to Egypt, and that very death was being used to provide a way out of Egypt for Israel. That's the climatic moment of the Exodus story. And what we learn about Jesus when you read the Gospels is he's the lamb. He's the true and greater lamb. He's the far more powerful lamb. His blood is far more holy and pure than any actual lamb's blood, and his blood is far more powerful at warding off death than any sacrificial lamb's blood would be. And we see Jesus make a sacrifice of his own. He is sacrificed on the cross. His blood is poured out across the cross posts, and that makes a way for Israel. His death makes a way for Israel to be rescued from the true oppressors of the world. But it's not just Israel that gets that rescue. It's anyone that looks to him gets that rescue. His death provides a way to escape the oppressors of this world, which, by the way, the oppressors of this world include sin, death, evil, and Satan, not just Pharaoh. And so Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the new exodus. Jesus' death on the cross even promises, just like Isaiah promises, that one day there will be rescue from the actual human oppressors too. This is how this new exodus would come. It would come through Jesus. Jesus and his work is the new exodus that Isaiah is prophesying about and talking about. Jesus is the new thing. When when God says, see, I'm doing a new thing, do you perceive it? He's talking about bringing Jesus into the world. And with Jesus' new exodus, he brings a forgiveness that Isaiah has already referenced, that, that You can't earn. You can't earn this forgiveness. You just get it like a gift. 
And with Jesus and his new exodus, you get the comfort of God himself. That's what Isaiah 43 here is another witness to, to this work that God did. It just imagine that, getting this message from God hundreds of years before it happened and then it plays out. What a witness to who he is and his power and his work in the world. Jesus is the new exodus. So here's my question for everybody in the room. Do, do you need rescue? Do you need comfort? Do you need forgiveness? Some of you might, oh, maybe some of that, maybe none of it. I don't need those things. I got those things in and of myself. I would just argue you need those things even if you don't think you need those things. And Jesus is the place every human can now find those things. Jesus is the new exodus. He's the new rescue for all of humanity. If you want rescue, you can only find it in Jesus. That's what this Isaiah passage is a witness to. Now, what's interesting is this passage kind of references, though, like, kind of like, okay, hey, this new exodus is going to happen, but then there's also going to be this new wilderness season that's going to happen, too, which this kind of sounds like a bummer. Because it's like, man, we, okay, we'll take the exodus, but I don't know if we want to be wandering around in the desert in the wilderness for a number of years. But it does seem that the, the poetry says, hey, there's going to be this new wilderness season as well where God provides water and more than that, as we'll see in Isaiah 44. So let's look at this third witness to God's work in the world. I'm going to read Isaiah 44, verses 2 through 5. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, who chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. So, in this something new that God said he'd be doing, part of some of this new stuff, it says it's going to your offspring. It's going to, to those born far later. That your offspring in some way are going to get this new thing. And the new thing that God says, part of this promise of the work of God, this new thing, is God is going to pour out his spirit on their offspring. What's interesting about this is the people of God up until that point in the story of history, they had seen God's spirit here and there. Like it would be poured out on a person to do some work or poured out on an event to do some work. And so they saw God's spirit here and there. But what this poetry is saying is what our third witness to God's work is. It's saying that he is a God who wants to pour, pour out a spirit, not here or there, not seldomly, but he wants to pour out his spirit generously. The image the, the, the poem gives us is like the spirit is raining a downpour across a parched land, across, uh, across anybody and on anybody that's under it. God wants to pour out his spirit generously, not seldomly. Now, these Israelites, they didn't get to see this. 
It was just simply a promise to their offspring. But a few hundred years later, a different group of Israelites got to see this when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to indwell all of his people, not just some of his people. This is part of the new thing that God is doing. And I think it's this thing that God does with his spirit. It helps us to know that all of these promises in Isaiah, besides the, one we've see, the ones we've seen happen in history, but the ones we just kind of have to trust the Lord with, the spirit helps us to see that that is true. That God's love really is like that. That God's love really is that powerful rather than just empty promises. God loves the world. He wants to save the world. So through through Jesus, God has brought about a lasting and a more powerful exodus where though we still live in this wilderness season and in this wilderness season, God wants to pour out his spirit on us. We we live in this wilderness season because you and I, we still live in the, the midst of sin and suffering and death. And so when the, the, the poem here is talking about this new wilderness season for this new people that have experienced this new exodus, I think he's referencing life right now. And that's encouraging to me when I read the Bible and I'm kind of like discouraged about life and I'm like, God, why aren't we experiencing the resurrection to its fullness? And you read passages like this and you go, because you're still in a wilderness season. But what's different for us in this wilderness season where we still have to live in the midst of sin and suffering and death What's different for us that the Israelites didn't have is we have God's spirit generously poured out on us. Now, I, it might be hard to understand why, why this wilderness season. And, and all I can say to kind of describe it or do my best to explain it is this is part of what God's plan is to save, every, save everything. To, to bring about resurrection. Like he... he is allowing this wilderness season, he's allowing his people, all that put their faith in Jesus, to go through this wilderness season while the Spirit is drenched on them so that we could do just what Israel was supposed to do. Remember earlier in the poem where it says, you are my servant, this covenant I made with you, you are my witnesses. That identity God has now transferred to all that have faith in his son, and now we walk around the globe as witnesses to Jesus filled with his spirit in this wilderness season so that those to the ends of the earth might see God, know God, know his love, and be drenched with his spirit as well. That's why this wilderness season is going on, continuing and going on. God is saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relent, I'm going to wait so that all might see my love and know my love. And so church, this promise in Isaiah that's a witness to this beautiful work of God pouring his spirit on us, let's not miss it. We have something far better than the people of Israel did where they just experienced the spirit here and there. You and I have been drenched with the spirit. I'm going to be an annoying pastor because anytime there's a passage that talks about this good promise, this good work of God's, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it. To me, as I read the Bible, this seems to be one of the best promises of the time and history that we live in. That God's Spirit lives on us and in us as a gift. We don't have to roam around like a bunch of Samsons and doing just random stuff. Like God, in this time of history, almost the same, you all are Samsons, actually. 
We get the spirit. I think so often American Christianity is, is, full, is a spiritlessness. But it seems to me that, that God is saying, in this new work I'm doing, this new thing I'm doing, his, my spirit will be in you and on you. And so church, you might not feel God, but he's with you. You might not believe it, but God lives in his people and all of them. Now, I think what this book also helps us realize as it witnesses to this wilderness season, this new wilderness that we all live in and have the spirit drenched on us, is it helps us realize that this identity that Israel has, we as the people of God have in a far greater way. That we are called to the same sort of things Israel's called to. Israel was always called to display who God is to the world so that the nations might be drawn in to worship the God of the universe. And now, with you and I, with the Spirit poured out on us, we have that same vocation. Our very lives, with the Spirit in us, is how the world sees a witness of God. This is why the media and everybody in the world is always kind of critiquing Christians, saying, you're not like Jesus. Guess what? God is sending us prophets through non-Christians to tell us what our vocation is. We are called to be this display, this witness to who God is. And so, yes, these passages, we need them as the people of God to be encouraged, to remember, yes, God loves me, I'm precious. Yes, God has done a new exodus that one day is going to fully and totally save me from every oppressor of this world. And yes, your spirit is on me. I'm drenched in your spirit. These words act as an encouragement, but they also should kind of act as like an identity for us or vocation for us. You are called to be a witness in a way to God's love, to everybody else in the world so that they experience and know God's love is like this. So when we talk about God's love and we say, this is what God's love is like, you are supposed to live God's love out in a way that helps people go, maybe that's real. Maybe that's real. Or at the very least, I wish I could believe what they believe because of how they love. You should act as a witness to the hope that you have in Jesus and the new exodus that he has brought about so that everyone in the world could say, I need salvation from this world's oppressors, oppressors, and it sounds like you know the way to get that salvation. And, and, and church, because of what God has done in history, pouring out his spirit on us, man, I really think we should be walking around this wilderness season in the midst of sin and suffering and death, almost like we each are a bucket of water, just finding thirsty, parched people and helping them to experience the refreshment of God through his spirit. I think that's what we're called to, church. So let these words this morning encourage you, yes, but also form your vocation, your identity, how you live life. Because God never meant for us to be a stagnant, self-centered people. We're supposed to be a flourishing, others-centered people. And we do that by being a witness to his love, by being a witness to this new exodus, and by being a witness to this powerful spirit, his spirit living in us. So church, God loves you.
You're precious to him. He's rescued you. He's given you his spirit. And so, may we remember and know God's love for us. May we go out and tell the world and show the world God's love. And may we, with the spirit in us, love the world with his love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this love you've given us. Father, thank you for time and time and time again talking to us toddlers about your love. Even though we don't get it, even though we refuse to see it, even though we find reasons to not believe it, God, thank you for just breaking through and loving us in spite of ourselves. God, this morning, uh, I just, your word just proclaimed to us all sorts of good things about who you are. And I, I just get a sense that sometimes some of us who've been running this race for a while get a little burnt out even hearing these things. We're not sure if they're real. And so, Holy Spirit, you've promised this refreshing in this wilderness season. I ask that in this moment, through your words, that we experience some level of refreshment. That we would understand and know you love us. That we would know that we are precious in your sight. So God, thank you for your word. Help us to not be blind and deaf to it. Give us faith this morning, God. Those, if there's anybody in here, God, that are far from you, I ask that you just draw them in, just like this passage just keeps announcing about you're the sort of God that will gather everybody in. Will you gather us all in this morning, God? We love you. We need your mighty hand, your redeeming arm for this to happen. We love you, Lord. Amen.